Matthew 11. Matthew 11. We've been in some pretty uh, heavy stuff lately, if you've been part of 613. I thought it would end at the end of Matthew 10. I should have read Matthew 11 before I said that. Next couple weeks, as we move towards Christmas, we might jump out of Matthew, and it'll probably be less about judgment and damnation. Um, You never know. You never know. Matthew 11, we'll read tonight, verses 20 through... 30, no, 20 through 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Let's pray and then we'll talk about the judgment of God. Father, we pray tonight that you would open us up to understanding a a full view of your righteous judgment that you bring upon those who refuse to let you enter into their cities and their lives. We thank you for those of us in this room who know you, that you've opened our eyes and opened our hearts to see the truth about who you are, and we followed you and trusted you, and you're bringing us day by day closer and closer to you through the work of your Spirit, through the message of the Gospel and your Son, Jesus. And we pray that you would use us to reach a lost and dying world around us. We thank you that you put us in this place as aliens and strangers in this world that that we might tell folks who don't know you about who you are when we think of this Christmas outreach coming up and even the Operation Christmas Child serving kids around the world. We pray that you would use us to bring the message of hope and gospel into the lives and hearts of everyone we come in contact with. We pray that our hearts would break for those who don't know you and you would help us to refuse to become prideful about the fact that we do And realize that it's only by a work of grace that you open our eyes because you want us to be a signpost for the kingdom of God in our cities. You want us to be an example in the way that we live and act righteously in our morals and in our justice. The way that we care for those who are lost and let down and hurting and lonely in this world. We pray that you would use us and you would grow us and that you would use us to establish a presence for your kingdom that is unmistakable and beautiful and winsome so that folks would follow you because they see you in us. We pray that you would forgive us for the way that we don't reflect you well so often. The way that we lose our temper and that we fall into abuse and we fall into sin and anger and bitterness and all those things, the deeds of the flesh, Lord. We, we repent of those things. We turn towards you and we ask you that you would fill us with your spirit so that the fruits of the spirit might emerge from our life. Pray that we would daily put off what belongs to our old nature and put on what belongs to this new nature, this, this spirit of God that you've 
cause to dwell in us, who envies jealously for our lives. We pray that we would give our lives to him, that he would renew us and make us new and and use us to reflect you into a lost and hurting world and show them the goodness and the glory and the beauty of our Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go and travel in the Holy Land and, and take some tours of sites that used to be lived in by people like Jesus and the Apostle Paul, people like Moses and David and Elijah. And it was this amazing opportunity to see all these places where epic things from the Bible had taken place. We got to stand on Mount Carmel and look down at the Jezreel Valley where Elijah took all the prophets of Baal after his miraculously showdown on the mountain. We got to go and see the place where David and Goliath fought. We got to see the Valley of Armageddon and where all these epic battles throughout human history have been converging. And we got to see these beautiful places where our Lord Jesus walked in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem and up in Galilee. It was a beautiful time to be able to see what God had done throughout the past and be reminded that these, pla- these things took place in an actual location. And yet the downside for most of these places we went was that most of the places that we went looked nothing like they used to look 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago. You go into Jerusalem and you want to just picture what it was like when Jesus was there. But today, if you go to Jerusalem today, there's just churches and uh, buildings and apartments and all these different structures everywhere. And our tour guide would say, okay, well, you have to imagine that all this was gone and decimated and it just looked like this and then Jesus walked here. Then we went across the street to Bethlehem and went up to where supposedly Jesus was born and they built a giant church on it. And so we'd say, okay, before there was no church, it was just like a little inn or something and Jesus was there. So imagine the church was gone. And so simultaneously we were seeing, wow, this is where it happened, but we had to use our imaginations and see, okay, it wasn't really like the way it is now. Except when we were in the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is a city on northern Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, right on the northern tip of Galilee, and we went up there, and unlike any other city we had visited, Capernaum looked like it hadn't been touched in 2,000 years. It lied in ruins, and the synagogue, the roof was gone, and the walls were kind of crumbling at the top, and some of the homes had been excavated, but no one had built on Capernaum in 2,000 years. And so we asked our tour guide, why is Capernaum different? Why has Capernaum never been rebuilt after the time of destruction in the first 400 years after Jesus? And our tour guide said, I don't know. He said, there are three cities up here that no one has ever built on after they were destroyed. He said, the city of Capernaum, the city of Bethsaida, and the city of Chorazin. These three cities, this evangelical triangle in northern Galilee, were destroyed in the first few centuries after Jesus and never rebuilt again. And immediately when he said that, I thought of this passage, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Capernaum, you will go down to Hades. And these are the three cities that Jesus brought his judgment on in this sermon in Matthew chapter 11. And and now unlike any other city in all of Israel, they were destroyed and they lied in ruins for the next 2,000 years. What did God have against these cities? Matthew tells us that when Jesus began to denounce the cities, it was because they did not repent. That these were cities where many of his miracles had been performed and he had done amazing things in these three cities and yet the people's hearts remained unchanged by it all. Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum were cities where Jesus had raised people from the dead. 
where Jesus had given sight to the blind, where Jesus had taken people and taught them the Sermon on the Mount and showed them who he truly was and what the ethics of the kingdom was all about and what God had called his people to be and to do and to look like in this world. The majority of his Galilean ministry were in these three cities, and yet the people in these cities, they loved to be healed. They loved to have their kids raised from the dead, but they did not continue to follow Jesus. And so he denounced them And he said, God will judge you. And then he did. The Romans came in and destroyed some of the cities. An earthquake came in a couple hundred years later and destroyed, decimated the other cities. And for thousands of years, they just laid in ruins and started getting covered in dust. You read a passage like this and you think, I hope God doesn't judge me like that. And we start to feel a little prideful. You know, well, well, I believe in Jesus, and so I'm set, you know. (laughs) I'm not going to get judged. I'm not going to feel the wrath of God because Jesus and I, we're buddies. We're cool, and so God can judge other people. He's not going to judge me. But this passage is not about God judging individuals like me and you. This passage is about God judging cities who didn't follow him. And if you're going to read this passage and bring up a question to wrestle with, it's not, am I someone who's going to face the judgment of God? This passage begs the question, am I living in a city where God's judgment is likely to come? That's a scarier question, right? Because we do live in a place that most of the world thinks, most of the Christian world thinks is pretty crazy. I remember I had a friend who was traveling in Texas and she was at the airport and ran into this woman who was reading a Christian novel. And so she goes up to this woman and says, hey, I've read that book. It's a good book. And the lady says, oh, you're a Christian? She says, yeah, I'm a Christian. You're a Christian? Okay, yeah, we talk about Christianity. And then she says, where are you from? And my friend says, I'm from the Bay. I'm from San Francisco. And the woman drops the book and steps back and says, that radical state? You live there? Right? She's like, yeah, there's tons of us, right? Like, we all live here. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago where these uh, three people were sitting in a room. This is like podcast. They, they argue about stuff. And they were arguing about education for our kids. And they're saying, okay, which is the best? Home, school, public school, private school, right? And they went around and they were good. They said, hey, there's no one biblical way to raise up your kids. And some of you in all three circles are like, no, there is one. There's not, right? There's all many ways to raise up your kids and education. And they said, hey, well, granted, there are some places in this country where you would never send your kids to public school if you were a Christian. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's probably true. And then I realized they were talking about here, right? They were talking about us. I'm like, hey, hey. Right? Most of Christianity looks at where we live and they say, you guys better get out of there soon because the fire is going to come from heaven, right? And if you go on Facebook, people here are saying it too. Is that true? Is God going to judge us? You know, there's all these crazy people get on TV when Katrina comes. They say, oh, God is judging New Orleans. Watch out, Vegas, you're next. The tsunami comes a decade ago and hits Southeast Asia and the Christians get on TV and they say, this is God's judgment for the idolatry of the people of Southeast Asia, right? And they're like, hey, come on. We see terrible things. We see the towers fall in 2001 and people say, oh, that's God's judgment on America. Is it? Is that how God works? When he did it to Chorazin, he did it to Bethsaida, he did it to Capernaum. Are we next? Jesus mentions a city in this passage that many of us have heard of, the city of Sodom. And if you've read the scriptures, Sodom and her sister town of Gomorrah were these two cities that were archetypal cities of destruction in the Bible. 
You never hear a good description of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible. One of you is going to find one now. I don't think you ever find a good description of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They were never like, oh, those people, God rained down fire on them. But, I mean, they made some great desserts in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Like nothing. You never hear anything good about Sodom and Gomorrah. These were places that were totally lost, that got totally destroyed. And Jesus says to these cities, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of destruction than it will be for y'all. For those of you in Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. And when we think back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we, maybe you haven't heard the story. I'll tell you a bit of it. It's crazy. This is Genesis 17, 18, 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah. God finds out that this city is wicked. People are crying out to the Lord. you got to do something about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the, these three beings come down from the heavens to go and bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the beings walk into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They go into the town square, and this man, Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, is there and says, oh, you should come and stay with me tonight. And so he invites them with hospitality to enter into his home and spend the night there. And meanwhile, all the men of the city find out about the visitors, and they storm Lot's house and start banging the door down. They say, bring out those three men who were here earlier. We want to have sex with them. And Lot says, please, you cannot do this to my visitors. This is a wicked thing. He offers his daughters to this this gang that wants to rape these men. And now he says, well, you can rape my daughters instead. The whole thing's a mess. And the angels blind the people of Sodom and tell Lot and his family to book it into the desert. And they run away and fire starts raining down on this evil, evil city. (laughs) Jesus says, Woe to you guys, it's going to be worse for you than that. And when you hear the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we always think about that incident, that terrible final incident where the judgment finally comes. But when you read through the Old and New Testaments, you see that there was multiple issues going on in those cities. In Jude, verse 7, I'll read this, you don't have to turn there. Jude describes Sodom and Gomorrah and says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, they indulged, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. If you read through the accounts throughout the Bible of how Sodom and Gomorrah were described and what the pinnacle of wickedness in a city looks like, this is the description that I wrote from all the different biblical texts. God's description of the pinnacle of depravity as a society full of pride, gluttony, prosperity, ease, neglect of the poor, sexual immorality, and an unquenchable desire to get what you want, regardless of the moral implications. You know, in the church, we think, well, this is great, because sexual immorality, that's not really us most of the time, but all the rest of the stuff, (laughs) ease is something that we seek after like a virtue, Gluttony is something we celebrate, right? Look at all the candy I ate last night. Prosperity is what we feel like is God's given right to us and should be sought after with all of our might. Neglect of the poor. There's probably no poor people around here. 
the attitude that we bring to our lives sometimes looks a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's no doubt that the cities that we live in, whether you live in Castro Valley or San Lorenzo or Oakland, San Francisco, anywhere in the East Bay, probably anywhere in America, right? That, that's, that describes us. Right? That's the American dream in a lot of ways he's describing here, except for the stuff that we're like, well, that stuff's bad, but the rest is good. We think of our whole financial system crashing a few years ago because of this unquenchable desire for people to get what they wanted regardless of the moral implications. I said, you know what, there's nothing illegal with the way that we're practicing business here. There's nothing illegal about the way that we're selling loans to people. There's nothing illegal about what we're doing with our finances. It wasn't illegal, but it was, it was immoral. It wasn't thinking about the disenfranchised and the poor and the hurting in our society. It was taking advantage of people and making us wealthier and wealthier until the whole thing crashed down. And this is a description of a sinful region or city. We live right in the middle of it. And so the question reemerges is, is judgment coming? Are we likely to have a firestorm, a literal firestorm come upon us? Are the earthquakes coming? Is that what God's about to do in San Ramon and all that? Is he going to split open the earth and swallow us in judgment? If you read through the scriptures, I think the answer is probably not. And that there's something that exists in our cities that did not exist in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a virtue, there's a sense of goodness in the cities that we live in that did not exist in Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. The difference in our society is that we have believers in Jesus who live here among the wickedness. Some of us are wicked too. When Abraham meets those angels that are going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he starts begging with them, saying, God, surely you would not destroy good people in that city if they're there. What if there's 50 good people in that city? Will you destroy them with the wicked people? And God says to Abraham, for the sake of 50 righteous people, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, well, what if there's only 45 um, people that are good in the city? Would you destroy it for the 45? And God says, no, 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 I, I won't destroy it if there's 45. And Abraham says, how about 40? Right? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10 righteous people? And God tells Abraham, if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy it. Abraham's like, Lot. Lot's wife. I got two kids, right? Paul lives there. My buddy Steve lives there. Uh, uh-oh, right? There's got to be more than that, but there wasn't. Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, Jesus says to the disciples as he sends them out, if you go into a city and they reject you utterly, no one will listen to you. No one wants to hear the gospel. Turn around, wipe the dust off your shoes and leave that place. Destruction will come to them. The gospel cannot get in there. They will be judged. Where we live is a little different. Even these cities that Jesus mentions, Tyre and Sidon, were these pagan cities that all the Israelites were like, oh, those people are terrible. But in Tyre and Sidon, the, go- the gospel made an inroad. So when the Apostle Paul is doing his journeys in the book of Acts, he stops in Tyre, he stops in Sidon, he greets the brothers and sisters, the disciples there. He does ministry in those cities because the gospel is starting to grow. That wasn't happening in Sodom, that wasn't happening in Gomorrah, that wasn't happening in Capernaum or Bethsaida or Chorazin. They had denounced God outright, and so destruction was imminent. When we read through the scriptures, we see that when God has placed his people in a city, it preserves that city from judgment. 
Remember Matthew 5, Jesus says you're the salt of the earth? Like, oh yeah, salt is a preservative, and one of the ways that we preserve the city is by existing therein. That if God for some reason wanted to rain down fire on San Francisco or Oakland or Castro Valley, and someone said, God, surely not. What if there are 10 righteous people there? God would say, well, here they are. Our existence in our neighborhoods is preserving them from the judgment of God. That's what the Bible teaches us. What are we going to do with that? Some of us think, well, I need to get out of my neighborhood, right? Then maybe God will destroy, right? That is the wrong heart, right? It's like the disciples who say, Jesus, should we call down fire on these cities? And Jesus is like, no, no, that's not what we want to do. That's the worst, right? We don't want to do that. I've put you in this place to preserve this place because I don't want to bring judgment. I want my gospel to spread and grow into these cities. It's almost like we are like this force field that is holding back the judgment of God by our presence. And in the midst of that force field, God has called us to go and serve and equip and help and love our cities in a way that will bring people to Jesus before the judgment ultimately does come. The biblical idea of judgment is linked with the biblical idea of God's long-suffering nature where God is willing to let people hurl insults at him and turn their back on him and walk away from him and ignore him for a long, long time because he is not willing that any should perish but all come to eternal life. So he gives us time. He gives our neighbors time. He gives our families time and says, turn to me, turn to me, turn to me. And the way he says that is through our mouths. Because you're the salt of the earth. You're preserving that block you live on and you're the light of the world that if they are to see the glory of Jesus Christ, they'll see it in you. Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul is preaching in Athens and, and he reminds them that God has appointed the time and the place where all of us will live. And if you live on Castro Valley Boulevard, God has appointed you to live in that place. If you live in a home with a bunch of crazy people, God has appointed you to live in that place for a time, for this time, so that you might devote yourself to him in that place and see his gospel fleshed out in that place. If you live across the bay or you live up in San Francisco, you live anywhere, God has appointed for you right now today to go back to that place and live there because he knows what he's doing. He's using you to preserve that place and bring the light of the gospel into that place before the judgment comes. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And we as the church of Jesus Christ are a city within the city. Peter, in his epistle, in chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, you can turn there if you like or I'll read it to you. Peter talks about the nature of the church. These people who live as strangers, as aliens, as foreigners in this world, this weird world we live in and who suffer and are persecuted. He says, you are suffered and scattered all over the world, but... But Christians, you are also a people of mine. He says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then Peter challenges the Christians who live in this pagan environment. He says, here's two things you need to know. Number one, live upright lives in this strange world. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 
Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then number two, he says, live as model citizens. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers and fear God and honor the king. Peter says when you live in a strange land, you need to remember that you are a people together with God and for God and of God. And you need to realize that your presence in this world is one that will turn the world upside down and no one will be able to figure out who you are and what you're all about. He says you're going to live such good lives that people are going to make fun of you, but they're going to know there's something different about you. And you're going to seem like these people who are different than the rest of society, but you're going to submit to the governing authority so well and live as such good citizens that people say, I can't figure these people out. These people, they, they, they live upright lives, they serve the poor, they bring folks into their homes, they just give and give and give. They seem so different than the world, but they pay their taxes, they respect the government, and they submit under the authorities institute among men. They are just model citizens of this world, but they seem like they're not even from this place, like they're aliens or something. And they're going to make fun of you, but it's going to be this, but there's something, there's something about you. It says, live good, such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. These people are going to look at you and have no idea what category to put you in. <laughs> First Peter 3 says to always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks to give you, you to give the reason for the hope that you have. <laughs> that they're going to make fun of you, they're going to spit on you, they're going to tell you you're stupid, that you're brainwashed, all these different kinds of things. And then someone's going to circle back and be like, Okay, man, all we do is make fun of you, and you keep serving us, and you keep doing good, and you seem like you just, you just, there's something different about you. How do you stay happy? Where's that hope coming from? And Peter says, get ready, because when that question comes, tell them about Jesus. Tell them that you are from a different world, and not in this weird culty way, right? But you are from this different world, that you are just a temporary foreign visitor in America. This is not your homeland. And sure, you got a passport, but you've got dual citizenship then in a sense, right? Your citizenship is in heaven, and you await a savior from there, and, and you are not from this place. And somebody will go back, and then they'll tell you you're crazy, and you start the whole they'll make fun of you cycle again. And it's going to be fun. But as we live the lives that God has called us to live in the city in which he's called us to exist, we hold back the wrath of God by our presence. We reflect the glory of God by our presence. And we bring the gospel of God into every corner and every dark place and every alleyway and every avenue of the city in which he's called us to live. Right? The heart of God is to bring the gospel to every tongue and tribe and nation around the world. Right? That's the Great Commission. Go into all nations and make disciples. From the beginning of Scripture to the end, God has his heart to bring his message, to bring his kingdom into every single place, every little culture, every cul-de-sac, every language that exists. God's presence should be there because his desire is to get his message about Jesus and the rescuing work of Christ into every people group, including the one that you live in, including the street that you live on, including the neighbors that you live next door to. Is God going to judge America Probably not for a while, because he's given us to have a mission here on this land. 
when the Jews were taken from Israel into Babylon, no one wanted to go. They were prisoners of war. They were captured. They were ripped away from the place that they saw as their holy land, and they lived in this pagan place, and all they wanted to do was hold back and not put down roots in Babylon. So just hold on, like, we'll be back in Jerusalem soon, you know, kind of that kind of thing. And God circles back in Jeremiah chapter 29, and the word of the Lord comes to this guy, Jeremiah, and says, let me tell the people, you're going to be here for a while, so hunker down. Hunker down in this pagan land. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God says, I know you've been taken from your homeland and your prisoners in this foreign pagan place where they worship false gods and they do unspeakable things. I get that, but I carried you there. I carried you there because I'm going to set down roots for you there and I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which I put you. I want you to start living there and increase in numbers there so that your influence will grow there and you can transform this place. Sometimes God scatters his people among the nations to bring his presence into the nations. And that's how we see the gospel emerging in the book of Acts is that Stephen gets killed, squashed like a bug, and the guts go all over the ancient Near East. And all the Christians just flee from Israel and they go into the Asia Minor. They go all over the place. And as they go there, they bring the gospel with them. And the gospel starts affecting and infecting the people in all of these cities. And God uses the scattering, the persecution, the throwing of Christians out into the world to transform the cities in which they land. And God wants to do that with us. Where do you live where God wants you to bring the presence of the gospel into that place? with your words and your attitudes and your actions. You might be thinking, you know, where I'm living right now, it's, it's just short term. It's an accident. I'm not going to be there long. God has put you there for now for a reason. Sometimes you'll be able to use your words and tell people about that reason. Other times it's just your life. You don't know what's happening, but God is using you to transform a place. That as you exist, people see Jesus in you. That as you mess up and find forgiveness, people see Jesus in you. As you succeed, sometimes on accident, people see Jesus in you. As you worship the Lord, people see Jesus in you. And your presence transforms that place because you are the image of God in that place. You carry the image of Christ wherever you go. So wherever you go, carry the image of Christ. Tonight, as we stop and take a moment to receive communion, It's a reminder that we are God's people who gather together as one body and then we scatter into this world as one still connected body. We come and we take this bread and we dip it in this juice and we eat it and we remember that we are one in Christ Jesus. That he is in us and we are in him and we together are the body of Christ. That this is, in a sense, from one loaf, from one cup, we eat of one bread and that is one Jesus who is the one head of one church and we are united in that. And then we leave and we go to multiple neighborhoods and multiple cities and multiple workplaces and multiple circumstances and multiple financial backgrounds and multiple everything. And we carry with us the reminder that even though we are separate, we are together. 
that we are people who exist as one in a world who transformed the world from our posts in which God has placed us. So not tonight as you take communion, remember the unity you have with Christ. Remember the unity we have with one another and remember that God is sending you out into the world to live like him. When we take communion, we eat this and we remember that Christ was sacrificed for us. That his wrath, or that the wrath of the people and the wrath of God were thrown on Jesus. And then we remember that if we're going to look like Jesus in the world, that the wrath of people is going to be thrown on us in the world. And we take it because we follow Jesus and that's what happens. We've talked about that the last couple weeks. That as we follow Jesus, we follow him into suffering. But we remember that we are one with him and we are one with each other in him as we go. Let me pray for us tonight and then we'll receive communion together.